This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. The year is 1984, and two kids with dreams are about to learn an NBA reality. The movie, Hoop Dreams. everyone and welcome to Unschooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we endeavor to find the 100 best films of all time. Currently, we are in our True Life Sports miniseries series, and today is the listener pick. And I have to say, Amy, we talked about this last week. It's an odd choice because we've been doing scripted films, and for the very first time, this show is doing a doc. We are doing hoop dreams and it was very unexpected that this one shot to the top of the list reality baby yeah at first i was like oh man i was kind of hoping i tanya would pull out or moneyball and then i thought actually how genius is this because all we've been talking about this entire series is the interplay between reality and life and making drama out of real life and what you have to change in a lot of these movies what they decided they had to change to make a movie more dramatic and now here we just have a straight up doc that is as dramatic if not perhaps more than everything we've covered in this film. What if reality at the end of the day wins over Hollywood? Yeah, well, I think the reason why we are so into sports films in general is because there's a sense that anything can happen in sports, right? A major comeback, uh, a loss, you know, the underdog can rise. And I just was watching a Clipper game last night and within the last two minutes, they came back from an 11 point deficit. And it was so exciting to kind of be in that moment. And I and I do feel like that is what brings us in in this movie today. I I'm so excited to talk about it and I can't believe I missed it. This came out like uh, right after I left high school or right when I was in high school And I never saw it. Did you see it? Have you seen it before today? I missed it too, which is bewildering to me. Because when you're a critic 
Hoop Dreams is one of those films that is paramount about what a good critic can do and how a good critic can be a responsible, positive influence on a life. You know, we're, we'll be talking a lot, I think, in this episode about Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel and how they made Hoop Dreams come into existence and become, at its highest point, the highest grossing documentary ever made at that time. Uh, and so I think all critics are like hoping to be that kind of critic who falls in love with a Hoop Dreams and takes young filmmakers and pushes them forward. So this one has always been large in my memory and that I didn't realize I'd never seen it, which is insane. Well, same. Like, I knew this film. I knew it was great. I just never brought myself to watch it. And I just want to circle back, and I know we'll talk about it in the podcast, but Roger Ebert once again championing uh, a unique voice, uh, an underrepresented voice. And I love that. I mean, we talked about it in Eve's Bayou. Like, this idea of really trusting someone to introduce you to something. And I think that we, we've we lost a little bit of that. You know, I think, you know, we, we live in our own bubbles and we know what's coming out and we'll read our own things. And I love that idea that, and I hope that we are still open to being influenced, you know, besides our friends telling us what they just watched on Netflix, that we go out and we read a cover story. And I think that you've been you know, definitely that's part of your career too, I would imagine. Like you see something, you see a trend, you chase it. I'd like to. I think you feel that responsibility of when you fall in love sharing the thing you love. I mean, Paul, you know, in my dream alternate reality, you and I have like a public access show on Chicago TV that winds up taking the world by storm. (laughs) I mean, it's so interesting that those two reviewers became like essentially the voice of film criticism and 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 it was something that you would tune in for uh, and they were on like you know Letterman and they were on Johnny Carson and you would you would watch them as like personalities like let these two people fight like and it was I don't know it, it it's so <laughs> it's so so interesting and now I think we just have it's true a delegated or just kind of collapsed it into a rotten tomato one and a half line with like a score positive or negative. And, and I, I like that debate. I know we get into that a little bit here, but it is, yeah. it is kind of missing some that, that energy behind. I didn't like Minari. I love Minari. Like we, I want that. <laughs> I want more like, you know, like impassioned debates, not just puff pieces or interviews to be like, it is or isn't good, you know? So uh, yeah. Same. And, you know, to that, to that note, you make me think, and I want to just give a shout out to a beloved person in my life. Um, a friend of mine from college whose name was Matt Volines. In college, he was like, my favorite critic is Roger Ebert. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a whole film stop. How dare you say your favorite critic is Roger Ebert? That's so middle-brow. Oh my God. Like, uh, we were always fighting about that. And he turned me around. He was like, what is wrong with that? What is wrong with being like a good-hearted, big person who wants to be the voice of America? You know, like, what's wrong with that? Like, Roger Ebert is a hero, And he turned me around on him. He like gave me, am I knee-jerk snobby? Like, oh, I only shop at thrift stores. He gave me respect for Ebert that I have treasured to this day. So raising a glass to Matt Volines. Love you, friend. Love you, friend. Oh, I love it. Well, Amy, check ball because it's time to unspool it. The year is 1994 for the first time. The public is introduced to the George Foreman Grill. Oh, love that. The Wonder Bra, Beanie Babies, Amazon, PlayStation, Friends, the TV show, and your favorite, Amy, the musical artist, Korn, with a K. 
Uh, big the year. Greatest. Uh, <laughs> big year in celebrity deaths. We had Kurt Cobain, John Candy, Richard Nixon, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, Nicole Brown Simpson. It's a very, uh, very, very big year there. And then McDonald's is sued for. The Too Hot Coffee. Nancy Kerrigan places second in the Olympics despite getting her knee smashed by the competition. Uh, and due to a strike, no one wins the World Series. It's a big year. 1994, or at least it's a big year for me. Like, I feel like this is like, this is like a formative high school year for me. Uh, the popular movies included The Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Speed, The Mask, and today's film, Hoop Dreams. So, Amy... I know it's a little different, but who's in it? What's it about? Who made it? Give us the details. Oh, here you go. Hoop Dreams. It is directed by the documentarian Steve James with co-writer Frederick Marx. Now, I think Marx is an interesting last name because this is a film that I think really digs into the economics, the ethics of these high school kids, college basketball kids who get recruited in the way that these adults, they dangle NBA hopes over talented young kids and then wind up disrupting their lives their families, their sense of worth. Now, Hoop Dreams itself is a documentary that follows two kids from Chicago. Their names are Arthur Agee and William Gates, and it follows them from the pivotal years of 14 to 18, these years that will define the rest of their lives. And part of the pressure that we see on them, it comes from their families, from their moms, their dads, their brothers that we all really get to know and all really get to care about in this film, like Arthur's dad, Bo, who struggles with addiction. We also really get to care about William's brother, Curtis, who was a high school star himself, who is now working as a security guard and struggling with becoming irrelevant. Take a listen to Hoop Dreams. Arthur is accepted at the public high school near his home. He's been out of school for two months and lost a whole semester's credit. Here you have a youngster caught in the middle of two separate school systems. Had he stayed at St. Joseph's, he would have been able to receive credit for that first semester. Doesn't seem fair, but then that's the system. If he was going out there and he was playing like they had predicted him to play, he wouldn't be at Marshall. Economics wouldn't have had anything to do with him not being at St. Joe's. Somebody would have made some kind of arrangement and the kid would have still been there. He's not making it like they thought he was going to make it on the basketball court, so he's not there. Simple as that. And it doesn't take no brilliant person to figure that out. Hoop Dreams hit theaters on October 14th, 1994, and it became, as we said, the highest grossing documentary to date at that time. What was the number one song that weekend, you ask? Well, I will tell you, because it is another classic hit, Boys to Men, I'll Make Love to You. And I'm sure you're asking, is there a connection between these two masterpieces? And actually, yes. The video for I'll Make Love to You is literally about a security guard who still has his own fantasies. It's just that his fantasies are all about taking a bubble bath with this like really beautiful woman who just had him install an alarm system. And if you do not remember this from the opening of the video... Allow me to jog your mind. Okay, so you secured the back and you secured all the windows? Great job, guys. Miss Sparks, you're perfectly safe now. Actually, I feel very safe. Why, why, why don't I show you how this works? Push this button and um, you punch in any number that you feel comfortable with. That's it. It's easy. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, Dwayne. Yeah. Can I offer you something to drink? Uh, listen, I really would love to, but I have some other jobs to attend to. Maybe another time? Okay. okay I mean, I do know you're going. Hey, uh, if you ever need me, I mean, for the system, that is, just uh, give me a call. Okay. All right? Thank you. Okay. 
Oh my God, Amy, I did not remember that at all. No. And now in the modern era, him saying, I can come visit you. I know your code. I'm like, oh girl, mm, change, no. that change, change that code. Change that code. Change that code. Change it. <laughs> you know, Amy, it's so interesting getting into this movie because we are living, I think in many respects, in the golden age of docs, right? You know, uh, Netflix, you know, Netflix, I think, in many respects, really helped documentary film culture because it put it out there. And I feel like everyone's like, did you watch this one? And there's, it, it's like a must-see, must-see TV for docs, right? Did you see the crazy cult one? Did you see the QAnon one? Did you see, and HBO has always been at the forefront of that. I And I wonder if podcasts too are helping because podcasts, especially at yes. the beginning when there's all the crime stabby ladies, they're like, let me tell you this true story. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, there has been this awakened interest for like the truth is always crazier than fiction. Well, I mean, and I think you could even go back one step further and say it all begins at Dateline with the uh, to catch a predator. Like we want we want to see, you know, real people being weird and, uh, you know, committing crimes. I remember as a kid watching I mean, this is not a documentary, but it is the same idea. Like the idea that you are uh, watching a, a a wife or a husband hire a contract killer to kill them. And then, you know, it's on, you know, again, it's all this, you know, you know, uh, white shirt tucked into, you know, very pressed blue jeans, a reporter talking about the crimes of American families. Uh, Do they but, have uh, there? Yeah. Oh, I love it. And all that to say that we've come a very long way from the 60 minutes hidden camera to these much better produced, beautiful looking documentaries. And, and on first glance and looking at Hoop Dreams, you're like, oh, wow, this is what docs look like, you know, back in 1994, which is not that long ago. But what a difference. I mean, it looks like a handicam. It looks down and dirty, uh, you know, um, and the Maisels, you know, obviously shot like this, but I think I've forgotten how plain docs were, right? Because now it is these beautiful shots and, and, and colors and you have amazing DPs. It just, there's something about this movie that it almost feels like you're watching a home video. It's scruffy. And the access yeah. feels like a home video too. And it is, it, I mean, it is in a way like a story about maybe documentary uh aesthetics even evolving as a film goes on. You know, you have these filmmakers who are like, we want to make a story about kids and basketball, you know, and we don't have a ton of money and we have these little cameras. And I guess we'll get like a week with these kids. And then the week they get with them turns into another week the next year turns into a gigantic grant to actually make a whole film and start shooting for real. So even in the years that we're seeing it's not so much that the camera gets like noticeably better because thank God they kept a, a consistent aesthetic, but documentaries and the muscle behind them is growing as they're making the film itself. And I also wonder, and I want to kind of talk about this. I don't know what you've seen or what you haven't seen or what you know, but there is a purity to this documentary, or it seems there's a purity to it that doesn't feel overly produced. I think right now we do live in an era where we are trying to get the twists and the turns. It's almost as if documentaries at a certain point took on some aesthetics of film, you know, where I think originally it was like, again, going back to Maisel's and I know there's a bunch of other documentarians out there. I'm just kind of going back to them. Like they're capturing a moment. They're capturing real life. And right now I think we're manipulating a real life story to have the same ebbs and flows of a feature, you know? Uh, so I think in this, 
we're kind of watching something that's kind of in between. Like it's it definitely pulls you on a journey. And I think, you know, the way it's structured has some of those elements. Um, and I think I only kind of realized maybe what they omitted at the end, you know, like where it's like, oh, and they, you know, at the end of the film, they're like, oh, and they have a child and they're married. And it's like, oh, that, these are parts of their lives that we never even saw. Like, and it was almost shocking to me. Like, I felt so in these kids' lives to then feel like, oh, wait, you had a kid and you had a girlfriend? I didn't even know this part of you. And I know that's not part of the documentary, but it it kind of just made me go, oh, we're here, but it's still, we're watching a movie. Like, this is a little bit more than just capturing. They are, the narrative arc is here a little bit more. And I think that's why maybe it connects on a bigger level. Yeah, I mean, because when you're doing a project like this, I mean, especially, I think they must have had over a hundred hours of footage at the end. Oh God. You know, it becomes a minimum, right? Yeah. At least, at least it becomes a question of finding your story through chiseling and editing and figuring out what you can include and cutting it down from like a nine hour version to a six hour version to seeing like a three hour version that I think even the documentarians, when they saw it for the first time, were like, Oh, it's like, we lost everything we loved and I hate it. Like it's not the six hour version. Mm. And, and yet, to us being able to come into it, we see the full world in a way, you know, documentary editing, I just think is absolutely fascinating. And so, 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 so hard. But to the, to the, what you're saying about like the aesthetics of it, I admire that when you have music that comes in, in this film, it's not like the dun, 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 you know, like there's a lot of Netflix documentaries I actually have to turn off because I'm like, your music is dumb and you're making me angry. Like you can't do this music. Like it's not this dramatic chill. It here they're like, Dramatic stuff is happening, but in the background, it's this mellow kind of breezy jazz. No, it's like it, saxophone. That's like, what's up? Or, I mean, of course, like the opening song, which is just, this is our best opening song, right? Flat out. It's so good. Let's a listen. 100%. Hands down. We have had nothing but stinkers with opening songs this whole miniseries. Bless you, the Hoop Dreams anthem. I feel rallied. No, I think there is something very PBS about this documentary. And I I found it to be very refreshing, not to look at it through those eyes. But I think what is so amazing about a good doc, and because we haven't talked about docs yet on the show, is this came out in 1994. And everything about this is true to this day. It doesn't feel dated. It doesn't feel, I mean, yes, there are techniques and looks and maybe music and styles, but the story is incredibly, like, I feel like it it just feels alive to me. And I think it's alive on two levels. One, the idea of like achieving your dream and how hard it is to achieve that dream in in a competitive space. But more importantly, what this documentary really does is shine a light on like people and lives and the America, uh, American life that I don't think is always seen. Like we want to hear the success stories. Oh, they worked their way up. They came here. But we see the gritty side of like these kids lives, you know, whether it's the power going out, like when the power goes out, like we 
I, I think it talks about what America is. I mean, some of the biggest problems that we're still in in America, we see on full display here. You know, the the ability not to have money in the house because the checks don't cover it or the fact that the kid isn't uh, a dependent anymore the minute he turns 18, even though he's still living in the house. Like There are these, how do you survive in a world that is constantly pushing you down? And uh, there's something about that that also, like this movie is about basketball and achieving that dream, but it's so much more. No, exactly. You know what I was actually thinking in terms of the range? was not even so much how modern it feels today, but how much Hoop Dreams feels like a documentary extension of Cooley High, you know, which we did earlier mm-hmm. this year, you yeah. know, being set in the same neighborhood, being about the friends that you make and the hopes that you have and how little decisions derail lives in small ways. And like having a friend who is your best friend, who also is not a good influence, like what happens to you then? And like, how do you make smart choices when it's really hard, when it's absolutely really hard. And it felt just as like lived in and charming. Exactly. And I think the thing that I respect about it is that it's not poverty porn. It's not exploitative. And I think that there was something about that that felt like we're just showing you this world. And I feel like we lately in docs or even reality TV, we lean in one or two directions to make them very like, look how disgusting this house is these hoarders are disgusting or look how rich these people's you know lives are in this fountain and this marble so I, I feel like this is really just telling the story of what it is real life it's not it's not leaning and I, I found that to be actually really refresh again really refreshing but yes uh let's no, you know you're right. yeah. no you're right like that that it feels like this is a documentary led by the bond the filmmakers had with their subjects in that say even with like the example of Arthur's electricity going out in his house and his, the filmmakers could tell that he was not, that he was very ashamed of that. And he mm-hmm. was, and he felt very sensitive about it and that they had to approach it in the same way. Like they respected his emotions and gave him kind of, like you can see in those scenes when they're filming and his electricity is out, that he's not happy that they're there and they're not comfortable about it. And the filmmakers made the choice actually to pay their electric bill and get their power turned back on, which then got them, of course, in trouble with other documentarians. They're like, you can't screw with your subjects. Like, if the power's out, you got to leave the power out. And they're like, you know what? We love this family. We're not going to do that. We're just not. And like making the call to be perhaps more emotionally engaged than like a real like deadpan documentary filmmaker would want them to be, but also to do the human choice. Or even even in things like the way that you were saying, it's a shock when – when the other kid, when William reveals that he has a baby daughter, the yeah. filmmakers are like, we didn't know that. He hid that from us. Like, And so oh, he wow. hid it from us. And then he announced that he had a baby out of nowhere. His mom actually told us because he didn't want to represent young kids having kids too early. He wow. was embarrassed about that. And they're like, we decided to include it the way that it was included to us. Like, boom. And so they really did follow almost their emotional lead and how some of the story played out. Wow, that's so interesting. And, you know, I, and just to go back to the electricity going off again, I'll just say like, I understand that choice because this movie is about these two families being exploited, right? Using them to get what they need, but not often helping them get what what they need to survive. Um, and I could see, like, if I'm I'm watching this family being taken advantage of just to give somebody else what they need, we're not going to be a part of that either. Like, I'm going to give them their electricity because I am using them 
to make a documentary. I'm not going to, I'm not going to further make their lives harder because that's what this whole movie is. It's like to achieve this dream, like they are being taken advantage of at every single step. If they're not matching what the output that is desired. And we should talk about these two kids. Like these two kids are very similar, very, and have very different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our two kids here are, you have Arthur and you have William and we meet them both when they're 14 and they're watching the all-star game and they are both agog at the same player, Isaiah Thomas, because Mm. he's like them. He came from their neighborhood. He went to the same school that they are both now entering as freshmen, St. Joseph's, which is about a 90 minute trip outside of where they live. So they're committing already when they're 14 to making a three hour trip by train to go to a school where they're getting indoctrinated in a lot of Catholicism and only really there to play basketball. Um, And what happens straight away in that freshman year is that, you know, Arthur is really good and he's like the freshman starting point guard. That's amazing to come in, be your starting point guard. And William is a little bit better, you know, out of the box and William's on varsity. And the the coach who we are going to spend a lot of time talking to, Coach Ping, uh, Pingatore, uh, gives extra help to William. You know, he helps William with his scholarship money to make sure he can stay in school. He makes sure that he's kind of happy and content. And he lets Arthur, who can't pay his tuition, slip through the cracks pretty much right away. And because he's not not producing Mm -hmm. what they want him to do. And look, as somebody who went to a Catholic school, like I see this really awful double standard here, like in the sense of, oh, we are a Catholic school. We're going to teach you all this sort of stuff and we give you everything. And the idea of like, I think... Catholicism on some level, at, at least from my experiences of, of being in these institutions, has been like, we help everyone. We bring people up. And here, it's so not that. Like, you would think that everyone would get this kind of attention. And it's like, no, 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 no. If you can't produce for us, you are, get out of here. We like it, it's, it's the anti-Catholic sentiment. It's so kind of wild to me. It's not just a, and I guess if it was a private school, I would feel differently. The fact that it's a Catholic school that is really showing no difference and there's no compassion there. It's like, there's no, there's no want to support. There's, it's only if you do for me, I will do for you. And it's, it's the most anti-Catholic sentiment I think you could possibly show on, on film. Yeah. And yet they're saying the right things, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning that, you know, Coach Ping is like, I'll get you to college. Like, I'm here. Like, you can trust me. And he's saying it of to these are, families yeah. who believe him and really because want they want to win him. a championship. Mm-hmm. Like they want to win a cha- And and what does that championship even mean? And and to many in many respects, like that. They have no desire about these guys and their career. They don't need them to have an NBA career. They don't need them to go to college. All they need is for them to win in high school. And we see that. And I think that that's like the most damning thing is no one's looking out for them as a person. They're looking out for them for a means to the end. If if they won that state championship and he never was able to play again, that's a victory for coach. Because that's where his journey ends. His journey ends there. No one's looking out for the full well-being of these two kids. No, not at all. I mean, maybe this is a good moment just to, because this isn't a narrative film, maybe we should just sort of 
lay out what happens and then get into like kind of how they tell the story. Yeah. So like William is kind of the blessed child, it seems Mm -hmm. at the beginning, you know, he has the charm. He has the handshakes because he gets the help with the donors. He, you know, gets to meet like wealthier people who seem to help him out, help they hire his brother. They give him a part-time job. Like he's being kind of groomed and smoothed to be this member of the community He's being rhapsodized by like the amazing pipe smoking guys on public access, the TV sports guys. We just have to hear them talk. They are incredible. From Chicago, it's the sports writers on TV. I think I may have seen the next Isaiah Thomas. St. Joe of Westchester has a kid named William Gates who is starting as a freshman. Remember, you heard it first from Bill Gleason. Put it in your memory bank, Put it in your memory bank. William Gates. By the way, when you said that you want us on public access in Chicago, I could only think... Uh, that if we do it, you need to start smoking a cigar and we have to do it in a round table like that. I mean, that is... I will take up smoking cigars if we get to do this. One of the things, uh, you know, one of the sad uh, things about Charlie Rose not being on television, I don't care about Charlie Rose, but I do miss a black box, you know, well-lit wooden table. Like, I love that. Like, it's such an antiquated way of showing TV, but I love it. It's There's something... So uh, personal that when I saw those guys like, oh, I want to watch a whole episode of these Chicago sports writers just chomping cigars and talking about sports. I loved it. Oh, I love it. You know, If we ever get our Chicago public late night access show, let's have that aesthetic and not like I'm so tired of like squiggly blue neon lines or whatever. Yeah, we don't need that. Yeah, like dun, 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 dun. Um, <laughs> But anyways, so like William is anointed. He's the one who's going to make it. And um. And then you start to see as his semester or as his years at the school progress, like he's under so much pressure to win. And all he talks about is not his own future. It's about taking his team downstate, you know, downstate being code for the state championship, because that's all his coach talks about. And you see his coach ride him harder than everybody else because he knows that he's great, which is a thing that we saw in pretty much all of our coaching movies so far. Like, I like you, so I'm going to be mean to you. But now we're watching how that plays out. Like, I like you, so I'm going to be mean to you. So I'm going to take away all your pleasure in this game and I'm going to make it feel like a job and I'm going to kind of crush this kid. And then he starts winding up with knee injuries and being pressured to play faster than he thinks he should. And in service of fulfilling this coach's dream, it really breaks him. It breaks him and how he feels about basketball. I, I that Which is the most crushing blow. I, You know, this is probably a larger conversation point. Not to derail us because I want to get into both, but I just want to say, like, as you talk about that, I couldn't help but think where you have an old white man screaming at a young black kid. And I can't imagine that you're like, fuck this. Like, it's not because I think that, like, yes, there will be like there will always be a coach player relationship. But also, I think there's a racial undertone there that you can't ignore. And I don't think I've ever really looked at it like that. And I think when I saw a couple of those moments, it's like, yes, he's acting as a coach, but I could also just feel like to have like a, like a, a person of another race, like yelling at you and like treating you like shit. Like, even though it's like for your betterment, I can't, I can't stop thinking about what that does to your psyche on some level that has to affect you. And I, and I think it took the love out of his game because I don't know how much respect was there. 
Am I reading too much into it to feel like there is an element of racism that could be existing in there? Just like a a, a, a poorer uh, person of color coming into an upper class uh, society and being yelled at under the guise of it's for your own good. I'm taking care of you. I don't know. No, I don't think you are reading into it. Like, I think if this documentary is made today, they might have hit that note just a little harder. And the way they hit it, I think, is is lovely. Like, because I think with the knowledge that we especially have now that we are having these conversations about, you know, dynamics and microaggressions, like words that weren't really common you know, when this film came out, I think we're able to even see what the directors knew was there, but didn't quite call mm-hmm. out expressly. Uh, for me, one of the moments that really jumped out is when um, William goes to like a the Nike camp yes. and you hear the recruiters talk about the kids at the Nike camp. And the way they talk about the kids just felt so uncomfortable. I mean, listen to this, like the, the words they're using, they're talking about them like me. They're only talking about bodies and they're not talking about humans. Already. One particular kid who's here now. I've watched them since sixth grade and I've watched them blossom. Because that's when you want to get on them when they're young young. and start writing them before everybody else writes them. Try to get any edge you can in this business. It's already become a meat market, but I try to to, uh, do my job, you know, and serve professional meat. There's this dehumanization there, right? Like they're just like. Absolutely. Oh, look at these NBA bodies they've got. Or it's a bugaboo. And it doesn't feel like it's it to me that's the creepy thing. It was almost like being in a zombie movie or something where like these people are coming up and saying, We're gonna take care of you, we're gonna take care of you, and just absolutely killing you behind your well, back. I mean, one of the saddest moments is when they have that recruiter who is, you know, going around to like the playgrounds and watching these kids to bring them to St. Joe's, like when he has his come to Jesus moment where he kind of has to answer for what he's doing too, because what he is doing is taking these kids out of their environment. There's so many things wrong with this, right? It's like, you're going into a world, you're taking someone out of a world, you're not putting anything back into the community. We're talking about this in such a, I mean, it's such a giant movie. I think that's why this movie works is like, it's what gentrification is. It's like, let's go in there. Let's take what we need and don't care about the rest. Elevate ourselves. And and he is somebody who is a black man who is doing this to, you know, and working with these people. And I feel like he has this moment where you see, like, he looks at himself in a way that you never. Yeah. That he, he never he did. He really has a bitter taste in his mouth about what he's doing. And he alludes yeah. to the fact that people in the neighborhood aren't happy with him. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Kind of what the story is about how this film came together and why they wound up talking to uh, William and to Arthur is that 
they wanted to do a film about young basketball players. They were only thinking like a 30 minute short, something really, really small. And they thought because Isaiah Thomas was so big, it would be really cool to shoot on the court that he was or to maybe figure out how to get him in the movie, which is why they wind up talking to Coach Ping, who had been his coach. Okay. Uh, and then Coach Ping like introduced them to the recruiter, to Big Earl, or to the, the I guess the talent scout, because he knew where Isaiah Thomas played when they were play- when he was a kid in Chicago. Wow. So he takes him to the court, and then that is how they wind up like really seeing like Arthur and seeing William. And Arthur was like, yeah, I was just playing. And as he calls it, like these quote, goofy white guys come out uh, from a Volvo and start setting up cameras. And he just started thinking to himself, I hope they don't get robbed up here for their equipment. And then he took them home and his mom was like, oh no, what's happening? Like, I didn't know these people were coming in. And he said his mom didn't have her teeth in and that she was really self-conscious about it. Um, But that they came back and they were very proper and that that is how the bond stuck. But it's almost like the talent scout scouted the stars of the film for them. He was really this pivotal force in both directions. Yeah. And and, and this to kind of, I know we we kind of have gone on some tangents, but like the story of Arthur is a little bit different than William, right? So Arthur, like we said, comes to school and isn't, uh, you know, doesn't basically live up to the potential that they think he's going to make. And because of that, they don't bend over backwards to make him meet his tuition. He has to leave St. Joe's. He winds up missing a lot of school and then transfers to uh, a local public school. And when he goes there, he gets on the team and he develops. And he develops actually in a pretty amazing way, in a way where I think in the beginning of the film, you think, oh, this may be the story of the kid who who reaches fame and the kid who does not. And what you kind of see is, again, very subtly, here's a kid who plays in his environment with people and supporting. And he is in his own pond, if you will. Like, right. But he's not being pulled into a different area. Like he is being supported by his community. He's rising up and he plays really well. And he gets to a point where this school has never gotten before. And this and this team builds and there's a different energy to the team. And there's a different energy to the coach. And and there's a different pride. And there's a different like he I think that there's a pride in Arthur that you you see ripped out of William. Like William is lamenting not having the success that Arthur has later, but there's a joy that's lost where I think Arthur's he's fulfilling what he wants. Like you're, you're seeing him, he's overcome and he's supported. And, and even though, uh, the struggle is real on both sides, there's something really, really amazing about Arthur's story and, 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 and triumphant, even though they don't win the championship, but they, where they go and where they place, uh, is just awesome. Yeah. I mean, I love how the documentary structures that, through the editing, because a lot of it, mm-hmm. it feels like you're kind of jumping back and forth through sort of related, but not exactly related moments in their life. Yeah. But when it comes to the joy of their individual teams, I think the film makes its clearest editing choice where you're with William as he's with his coach and they get on their bus and they head to a game and then they just wordlessly cut to Arthur's bus and you hear the difference in the joy. Like that's where it's the most apparent. I mean, here, just listen to it. There's never any point in our school where we just just play outright, you know. I remember, think about the ball game on the way to the game. Stay, stay, stay. 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 Stay, stay, stay.
Yeah, I think that's where it really hammers at home. Because you're right, like, this is a film where you're going on these emotional journeys of thinking like, wow, so one small choice here can affect your entire life. You know, and you think you're mm-hmm. watching this like arc of, um, to me, yeah, I kept thinking of like, I, I was almost thinking of like William as being groomed to be kind of like a Magic Johnson, you know, because Magic Johnson had a similar kind of story of like having these people look out for him, like them realizing he was a kid with a really good big smile that they could take into rooms and kind of parade honestly around, like, look at this awesome kid. You know, I was thinking about how much I was even getting punked by this film and maybe just by my own belief of what a sports film is, because we see them both as 14 year olds being so passionate about this game, having nothing but confidence they're going to get to the NBA. And right away, like right at the top of the key of this movie, Isaiah Thomas himself comes in and talks to them. And he's like, hey, this is going to be really, really hard. Right. He says this. In everybody's neighborhood, there's a guy who can really play and you know the thing is Isaiah is telling saying exactly the truth of what's going to happen in this film. And I caught myself because I want to believe being like, yeah, but these guys are the exceptions. Like believing in a Hollywood myth, even though like this whole movie is about the hard work. It feels like every step of this, people are saying, this does not work out. Like, do you know that there are over what? I think it's like over 550,000 high school basketball players who want to make it to the NBA. And every year the NBA has like 60 slots in the draft. And that's not even counting international players. Like it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And yet I want to believe, despite experts, despite Isaiah Thomas himself telling these kids it's not going to happen. Yeah. And and you look at, you know, even when you get to the higher echelon, you know, the McDonald's camp, right? When they're in that camp, what you're talking about where they're looking at cuts of meat, essentially, you know, these like this, this, it's happening even there, right? Like, it's like, even if you can achieve being in the top 10%, it's still true. Like Isaiah Thomas is talking to, you know, a bunch of kids, a bunch of good kids, basically like everyone, right? Like if you like, like that's the, that's what you say to everyone. And then the same is true for the top 10%, top 5%. Like, uh, it really is. And I, and I think this movie does an amazing job of showing like, it's not enough to be good. It's not enough to be lucky. Uh, it's not enough to be healthy. You have to have a mental uh, stability that's really unheard of for a young child. Like a 14-year-old, you have to, and you have to be beaten down. I think that's why we, you know, we could draw a parallel to this and um, that documentary that was on uh, Hulu, right? Like that uh, about the kids from the 80s, like the Punky Brewster and stuff like that. Oh, like, yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. Like it's yeah. just sort of, I mean, yeah, it's like, but the idea I that. I for the Jonathan Brandis footage. I love yeah, him. That, but I that's a, him. Yeah. yeah. But like that idea that, that kids shouldn't have this much on them. But we're in a world where you have to succeed. I, I have a friend who is a, a professional tennis player. And and the the youth that was ripped away from him. Because he was good. He showed that he could play. And it's and that's what you're doing. You're giving up your youth. And there's something triumphant about 
William Gates going, fuck it. Nope. No, thank you. I'm out. Like, I, I didn't find that to be upsetting because I saw what he went through. And I was like, why would you? He, he respects himself. Like, he respects what he's doing and what he has done is pretty fucking cool. Like, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's a, a pastor and he's a, a, a big part of his community. It's like, I love that this movie shows you, I mean, and it doesn't fully go into where he goes afterwards, but that there is life out. Like, it's not a failure to not continue on this path, but it just takes a certain type of person who will. And both of these guys, I mean, spoiler alert, don't do it. Like they don't get drafted. They, you know, the, the highest, you know, Arthur goes to, uh, you know, gets into a good school and then drops out after his first year, you know, playing ball. It's like, it's okay. It's, I mean, he goes off and makes another documentary about one of my favorite players of all time, Patrick Beverly, uh, hoop reality. Um, I understand. I understand. Like I, it's hard. It's hard to, especially in this world where like you are judging your body. And if your body goes out, like his knee, his knee is done. Like, you know, you have that many surgeries before you're even in college, before it even matters. It, it's wild. Yeah. I mean, Arthur goes on and gives like this inspirational speech in hoop reality, you know, talking about like how he's okay, how he's made a piece with it. In 1997, I decided to walk away from the game of basketball trying to pursue it to the NBA. Because from the first hoop dream, where's the reality at to it? You didn't make the NBA, Arthur. That was your goal. That was the dream in that first movie. Where's the hoop reality at now? I love to design. I love to draw. And I never knew that if I put the basketball down, I could take my drawing and my creativity to a whole nother level. And yet, I mean, I'm glad that he has made peace with it. it, it and yet, me as a viewer, my heart is still kind of broken. Because, like, to meet these kids and just see how talented they were, I think that's but, the hard part. Is like, I, but can I can I just say though, they're so talented. They're so talented, absolutely and astonishing. And I want so much for them, and I wanted it to work so badly. And I and then to me, the real twist came where I started to try to like readjust and not be like as delusional and crazy of a fourteen year old at my advanced age, being a non athletic female as they are where I really kind of felt like I was almost slapped in the face was getting to know more about William's brother, Curtis, and his basketball talents. I mean, I think Curtis, from the footage you see of Curtis playing ball, he's a few years older than William. He he was even better, to be honest, maybe. Like he yeah. was even better and he knows the game and he made the mistakes and he didn't make it in college either. And to see old footage of this guy who you're introduced to, I think in the most casual way, like the, the film introduces all your characters first is like, here's William, here's William's mom. They don't give her a name. Here's William's brother. I mean, I guess they're doing like the, the Dottie Hinson, like this is Dottie's sister right. uh, joke accidentally before you get to like, see them emerge as characters. But you see Curtis first emerge as kind of like a guy who hangs around the courts. He works as a security guard, you know, to William, he's always giving him, like, maybe unnecessary advice. And only after an hour do you see what a talent he was, how astonishing he was. And he opens up and he says, like, I've really fucked up my life. When basketball is over, William may not have a friend in the world. Curtis lost his job as a security guard and has been unemployed for over four months. 
Sometimes I just sit around and my eyes just kind of get watery because I be like, I ain't, I ain't mount to nothing. You know, I ain't, I ain't got nothing. I, ain't got, I can't even get a, I can't even go out there and get a job making $7 an hour, you know. I be sitting up telling myself, you ain't going to get no better. Curtis, to me, is just the heart of this film. I don't know why. I love Curtis. I like, I love Curtis. I, you know, I, I love Curtis as well. I want to talk to you about two things, but I also say, like, in that idea of, like, the heart of the movie, I'm also really fascinated by Arthur's dad, who you really go on a journey in these four years, you know, for, you know, he's there, he's in the family, he's working, he loses his job, he becomes addicted to drugs, he leaves the family, he comes back to the family, then he leaves the family again. We don't really understand what, what goes on in that moment when he comes back for the signing of the college papers, like in that one moment where he comes back, like he's, he's not been around and he comes back, but there is something about that too. Like, wow, this man has overcome a drug addiction has like, this is a very, like, there's a lot going on that I think is surprising. And that's all in the background. Like those are all stories that are going on in the background. And it's like, Oh, and any one of those could be an interesting movie. Yeah. Bo, the dad develops so much. But you even get a sense of him right at the beginning, right? Because he's like sitting there with his son and he's like, I could have been a professional ball player. I could have done it. And the camera just keeps looking at his wife and she's just staring off into the distance like she has heard this a million times. They just, they silently through that image, let you know to never take Bo that seriously. Well, so it's I almost mean, a surprise to me when he comes out at the end and starts playing ball against Arthur after Arthur yeah. has been winning championships and he's just as good. And they get into a huge fight that you can tell is about everything. It's not just about the court. It's about like growing up with this man who went through so many personality mutations that you could never take him seriously. No, no, no card game. I'm older now. Yeah. Ain't no card game going on no more. No more. Ain't no more. Ain't no more. Now you can play for 32 if you want. Well, hey, game over with. I can con too. Losers quit. I'm ready to play. Like you're a coward if you don't get a check ball. You mad now. Check ball. Give me that. You ain't two years old. You ain't getting no pacifier. Give me that. Yeah. Give me that. Your mama ain't here to give you this ball. Let's go. I mean, and I just want to talk about this idea of like, is it unfair to be like, oh, you did? They didn't make it. They didn't make it. I guess, I guess it's dangling this carrot over a, a plexiglass shield. Like, I can see it. It looks like I can reach it, but I, I'll never be able to reach it. Doesn't make it's again. It doesn't make a difference about talent. It's also about financial support. Like you need, mo- like money needs to be in play for you to achieve your thing. And, and, and that, that immediately eliminates so many people because again, no one was behind Arthur when he wasn't producing. He had to go somewhere else and then he produced and he did get like, he was able to move up, but it's really upsetting. I think it's, I think there's, and I love this documentary. I don't want to make it to be too, like, I think we're just looking at some of the layers underneath it. Like it's a very compelling story. It's, it's incredibly personal. It's, Amazing. I think when you look at like the idea of anything creative and sports related, music, basketball, baseball, what, there's so few spots and there's so many talented people and there's so many great stories and there's so many people who in high school threw out their arm as a pitcher and they could never play professional ball or there's or there is the person who needed to you know work instead of go to practice and to provide for their family and they never got like there's so many 
missed opportunities. And this movie does a great job of like kind of showing all sides. And it's not, and maybe it's not the, you know, it, I think it's sometimes positioned as the only way out, but maybe there's other ways out. It, it's, yeah, it's an like overwhelming. When they, yeah. yeah. When they say that there's a moment where you think where William says that it's his only way. And he uses the phrase like out of the ghetto. And it doesn't even sound like a phrase he would say, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, they're sort of told this way. I mean, I guess, can we draw a distinction between heartbreaking and failure? Is it okay if my heart breaks and I feel yeah. the emotions of the heartbreak without feeling that this is a failure? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, look, anything that you devote four plus years, I mean, more than four plus years, but you devote your life to achieving something like, yeah, you, you, you realign, you find something different. I think these guys have both, they both seemingly found something different. And I wonder if even having the documentary crew there allowed them that, you know, like maybe William can be like, fuck basketball because there's somebody else there in his life that is documenting him. You know, you know what I'm saying? I was like, yeah. do you, I don't know. Like, I kind of feel like William can say fuck basketball less because of the documentary and more because of his girlfriend, like his girlfriend, Catherine, they, you know, we don't get to know that much about her, but we, I read afterwards that they'd been together since they were in grammar school. They have been together oh, since wow. they were little kids. And so she can talk to him and there's, you know, she's kind of on the sidelines in most of the movie, like a sideline asleep, not getting to say too much, but she has that one scene where she emerges and she's like, your coach sucks. Your coach told you you couldn't be there when our baby was born. This coach is stingy himself and she just won't weigh him to run out there and play. The day she was going to, you know, be born, I told him he had to be there. I don't care what his coach said. I know the game was important, but this was more important. And his coach coach doesn't see it like that. I just can't miss the game just because, you know, an incident occurred. You know, unless it was like a death or something like that. Oh, this is once I'm like that thing, like the girl was born every day. That's what I'm trying to Especially around that time of the year, too. State tournament. That was simply out of question. He tells me, well, it'll benefit us in the future. I'm like, but what about now? He can say, in the future. Basketball was my ticket out of the ghetto. If I wouldn't have been playing ball, I would not even be going to college. I'm going to school, I'm going to college, and I have a daughter. So what's, okay, what's my situation? Situations are much different. No, it's not. I mean, I think that scene, that scene where you realize there is a person on William's side, who's not in love with him for the hopes and is going to be there to tell him like the straight truth of what's happening. Like she's there for him and as his ally. And if his coach is leading him astray, she's not just gonna be like, do what your coach says, get to the NBA. Like she's there for him. I think she cares about him, which they needed. I mean, like, cause what happens to him after he leaves college is they wind up having like three more kids and he gets jobs at McDonald's. He gets jobs at grocery stores. He he does some pest control work and she's there. She's there for all of that too. And he's like, man, I have a degree from college. I have this movie. I still can't find a job, but he has this like rock solid partner, this like alliance. And I mean, I want to, you know, shout out as we're talking about the important women in, in these men's lives, you know, I think Arthur's mom is just a phenomenal rock and a a support and you never get the sense that these women are what you said making them produce right they are they are they are supporting them without leaning on them for support if that you know like and there's something 
you know, very pure about that. And I think that, you know, uh, Curtis, you know, does that too. But Curtis also, I feel like, is kind of sabotaging William. Like when they come late to the game, you know, and it's like, oh, well, yeah, we, we got there late, but that's not our fault. Like, it's like, it's so hard to find like people that really give to these two guys, uh, you know, without wanting something in return. And, and I think that these two women in both of their lives are these rocks, these consistent rocks that are not, that are going to get their back through thick and thin. Um, That's true. Like all of the men in their lives, Bo and Curtis both say like, you are me. Like I am mm-hmm. putting my hopes into you. And the women are just there for them. I have to say when the coach, when coach Ping like benches William for a big game because he was late, I was like, do you know he make, he goes 90 minutes to get there. Like what if they missed a train? You know, right. like if he doesn't just live down the street, like give him a break. Like give him I don't a like break. coach. I don't like that coach. I mean, and, and of course I think, you know, it's a great job of making a villain who's not a villain. Like he's not a mustache twirling villain. Like I think he's the worst kind of villain, which is like, this is for your own good. And that's the kind of villain that can really, it's a, all right, I'll go out on a limb and say, it's a, it's an abusive character. He's an abusive character in the sense of penalizing, withholding, uh, verbally, you know, attacking. And I think what he does is it's couched under the idea of coach. But what's really there is I am your boss. And, and it's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll listen in and I'll look and I'll blah, 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 blah. But it there, even, even the SAT coaches or the ACT coaches, like there's this, there's a dickishness underneath them. Like when he's like, Hey, you didn't get that. You work on that. Like you worked on your jump shot, which you did need work on. It's like, there's just like a, I don't know where I felt like I was like, good, get the fuck out of this world because you are, you know, people are just, you're in these abusive relationships. I think that's what I kept on feeling. I kept on feeling this idea like, ooh, get out of here. Like the only people, and the other, the other guy who I thought was actually pretty good was the doctor, the doctor who, the secondary doctor who was like, I, you, you got to take some time. You got to take some time. Like, it wasn't in it for, I mean, he does say that line, which is also fucking a gut punch where he's like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, he's going to get arthritis much earlier, but it's like, oh, like it's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. But at least... He's not rushing him back in, you know, yeah. and, and no one's looking, but no one else is looking at it's, like, it's rare. I guess what I'm saying is it's so rare to see somebody that is trying to teach and learn and do this. And like when you see that teacher, another woman, that woman who is like, I'm going to actually help this person get past the fifth grade reading of, I'm going to, I'm there, I'm watching them learn. I'm, you know, it's like, and you saw how their grades were reliant on their performance. You know, it's like, it's, there's, you know, it's about ego. It's, it's lifting the ego and it's. And I feel like St. Joe's was very much about keeping the ego in check so they are, on t- like, we give it to you and we could take it away. And there was something really upsetting about that, um, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, to jump into all of those characters, like, that first doctor he meets, he just looks like he's from a Saturday Night Live skit, right? He's oh, like, yeah. oh, I play a doctor. Like, he looks like yeah. Trump's doctor. He's like, what is your what is your mullet? What is happening yeah. over there? Like, I do not trust you. Like, yes, I know it was the 90s, but I still don't trust your hair. No, it's no, still, no. It, was, it was shady hair even in the 90s. It, and yeah, like putting the onus on William to decide whether or not he's going to play on a knee that just got healed. Just, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a Laker fan. I'm going through like, 
LeBron and AD getting past their injuries. And at the end of the day, like I keep telling myself, like, doesn't matter if they don't play this season, even though I think they will. Like what matters is like AD being healthy. You know, what matters is like, yeah. what matters is them, you know, but and you are like, I hope you do come back. But like putting that pressure on a kid to decide whether or not he's going to let you down. That's the situation that Pink put him in. Like, I really want to get to state. We can get down state if you're here. I mean, are you ready? Are you going to do it? Like that manipulation of making him perhaps injure himself forever because of that, you know, like, yeah. Make, because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about the player. He cares about his team. Yeah. Like, and that's it. That's it. And it's crazy because, like, when the filmmakers of Hoop Dreams showed Coach Ping the film, when they showed him a cut, they were, A, of course, like, really nervous about it because they know how he comes across. He came across how he was. And they were sitting there, like, really freaked out, and Coach Ping was not happy. Um, and later on sues them for $30,000 and is like... Yeah, like you really portrayed uh, our school in a negative way. And I feel like you really misled us. I thought this was going to be about education and I don't feel like it's true. And the documentarians were like, this is how it happened. Like, this is how it happened and we stand by it. And they settled the case, but they only settled it on terms they thought were comfortable. They didn't give coach any money, but they set up a scholarship at St. Joe's and they set up an equal scholarship at Marshall. Because they're like, we're not going like, to give this private school more money than the public school gets. You know, this is all BS. But like, I mean, you're Coach Ping. You did this stuff. Like you have this horrible confrontation, I think, at the end, like really kind of quietly agonizing where he's trying to convince William that like he'll be grateful for the way that he treated him. We had run-ins. and Who had run-ins? Me and you. We did? Yeah, like that time you made me run 75 stairs. I know. You never forget that. Never. So you should have been happy and enthusiastic about doing your punishment. But someday you're going to learn that uh, everything that was done was for your benefit so that you can come back four years from now and say, Coach, you were right. Everything that happened at St. Joe's helped me a lot. And as a result, I got a degree. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm going into communication. So when you start asking for donations, I know the right way to turn you down. <laughs> I'm sure you'll never turn us down. I mean, you watch yourself on camera, like, putting the screws on a little kid like that. I mean, how happy are you when William is like, I can't wait to tell you that I'm never giving you money. And the coach I is like, it. I still yeah. am. Are you, are you, will, you will still give me money. And he leaves the room, and the coach just says this line, which I think is absolutely devastating. I don't want this to be the, you know, the highlight of your career. You got a lot of bigger and better things to do. I'll see you later. Good luck. Well, another one walks out the door, another one comes in the door. That's what it's all about. I mean, that's just yeah. it right there. That's how he sees this kid. It doesn't, he, yeah, it who, doesn't. Like, I want to he doesn't he care. About. Yeah, he, he does not care. It is like testing. He. He seems to care driving him to ACT appointments because and yet at the end of the day. He's doing the bare minimum. He's doing, I think, what a typical abuser does, which is I'm going to give you just a little bit to feel like you can trust me, but it's not, it's not, it's not well-intentioned. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard... 
I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I think, you know, we're having this big conversation and there's so much to unpack here, but I think what's really important to kind of talk about is the legacy of this film, what this film does that I think pushes documentary forward, how it's received, how it, how it kind of shines a light, which is kind of an interesting thing. And you'll see why in a second on the Academy Awards and how they judge documentary films, because what you said earlier was, you know, Siskel and Ebert, Chicago guys, uh, who I think there's a big connection with Chicago and basketball. This is a, uh, you know, it's a Chicago story. And I think that they really elevate this, this movie. And let's talk a little bit about this controversy that goes on about this film. Yeah, it turns into a scandal. I mean, in a way, I think there's a parallel between this film and its subjects. You know, here's a little film, winds up like being at Sundance, making a huge splash, like suddenly all of a sudden being like the toast of the town. Everybody, I mean, Film distributors are like recruiting them, right? Like sign with us, sign with us. We'll give you this money. Like they become darlings at Sundance overnight. Like they're 14 year olds basically in the world of cinema, like making this splash, feeling a little bit under overwhelmed, getting calls from Madonna's like person asking if she can have a print, like having people write stories about how this film is going to make a million dollars and then having to talk to the families of these kids about it and being like, we're actually not making a million dollars, but every, all of this hype, it's like a hype cycle that they're in that continues to the Oscars where it's not just like, oh, of course, Hoop Dreams is going to get a doc nom. It's also maybe going to get a best picture nom. Like that's where they're shooting. Like best picture nom for a documentary is like making it in the NBA if you're a documentary. And, you know, just to kind of just underline what you're saying, like when it does premiere at Sundance, it is a hit. It's the audience favorite, mm-hmm. like in an audience favorite is like a very interesting term because I think the audience favorite and obviously Sundance has changed. But the audience favorite is saying this is the one that will get mainstream success to a certain degree. Right. Like it's going to yeah. be like and and, and Tiff this audience is a, always wins like best picture. Usually yeah. Tiff audience is like the best picture nominee. Like these audience awards are major. And so that idea, like it's coming, it's also at a time, like I said to you in the beginning, like it's 94. So we have, you know, Pulp Fiction is out, you know, it's like, like this is a a good moment. the same weekend. Wild, right? So, (laughs) you know, so I I guess, you know, just to kind of put this in perspective, but yet uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't get this, you know? Yeah. Not only does it it not get a Best Picture nom, it doesn't get a Best Documentary nom, which sends Siskel and Ebert on the war path. I mean, yeah. can we just hear them rant about it? Like, cause they, yes. what I like about Siskel and Ebert is not only were they there to champion the film, which they did. They both put it as their number one film of the year. Yeah, this is them agreeing right now on their show. Well, Roger, this is also my choice as the best film of 1994. It's the best picture that I saw. It has the greatest reach of any film. It, uh, when you, this is an eight year project by these three filmmakers. If I've heard people say, oh, it's three hours. Well, these guys can spend eight years out of their lives. Can you think you can spend an hour more than you spent on, let's say, seeing Richie Rich? I think you can handle that. I think audiences <laughs> can handle that. Um, the story's completely surprising. 
a basketball shot's a free throw, one of the most boring things in all of basketball, takes on an importance here in just the way yes. you're talking about, where you're thinking about not just the score of the game, but what that shot will mean to the kids to an and their life. families. Yes, yes. And their families. This movie has twists and turns in it yeah. that you wouldn't believe in a fiction film. It keeps you absolutely on the edge of your seat. You're scene. right. You're living with these families, and they're... They're great families. Having said that, now let's take a look at my number two pick, which is Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. When a few months later it doesn't get that Oscar nom, they're like, oh, fuck this. And they use their air, air their bandwidth to talk about it and to wind up like exposing how the Oscar nomination process works for the documentary filmmakers to everybody in a way that gets changes. I mean, this is also them talking about it. The best thing to come out of the snubbing is that the media is going to spend more time now promoting Hoop Dreams, which opened wider last week. It's now in more than 250 theaters across the country. You take a look. You'll be glad you, you did. You know, Gene, I was talking to Barbara Koppel, who won two Academy Awards a for great her documentary filmmaker. And she said this committee is in love with talking heads and stock footage, and that's exactly what they are. These old-fashioned, television-oriented films with battleships bombing the beaches of Normandy while some deep voice says how many troops went ashore. They are not interested in living, breathing documentaries. And there's another problem, and that is... The committee that picks these documentaries is volunteers, mostly retired people, not most of them documentarians at all. But they have four hours free, two nights a week for 11 weeks to see 64 documentaries, almost 100 hours of documentaries. And so they go night after night and they get to know each other and they chat and they arrive and they leave. And until this year, they had a chairman. This year, the woman who was the chairman stepped aside for a year because she had a film that was in the running. Now, what do you know? They nominated it. It's the Stockholm Syndrome. They're so friendly that, of course, they wanted to do her a favor. And every year, if you go back year after year and look at the nominees, you'll find one or two nominees that are fishy because the people that manipulate the committee are trying to get their pictures nominated. This situation stinks. It's rotten. And until the Academy reforms it, they have shame on their name. I mean, this idea that like the documentary nominations were ruled by a bunch of people who weren't documentary filmmakers and were sitting in a, you know, a room and flashing flashlights at the screen when they thought a movie was boring. And if I it mean, was boring, then they would turn it off. And Ebert finding out that they turned off Hoop Dreams after 20 minutes because people are just like, nah. It's wild. It's wild to me. And then, and then uncovering this bigger conspiracy. I mean, the idea that this that the Academy Awards were gaming the system to help elevate one of their own. Like they were, you know, doing this, the, this kind of, I mean, cheat. It was a full on cheat. Well, I mean, and the, this idea that I think the, the voices of Siskel and Ebert get Bruce Davis, who's the Academy's executive director, to talk to Price Waterhouse and say, you need to show us the voting. And he looks at the voting and, uh, there were 63 eligible documentaries on a scale of 0 to 10. You'd vote on 0 to 10. And what Davis said he found was a small group of members gave zeros to every single film except the five they wanted to see nominated. And they gave 10 to those five, which completely skewed the voting. And there was one film that received more scores of 10 than any other, but it wasn't nominated. It also got zeros from those voters, and it was enough to get past uh, sixth place. So it's like, it's this crazy, like they literally, they asked for the records and they saw this was fr fraud, 
full-on fraud, and no one thought they would catch it. But I love that Siskel and Ebert like brought it down. It's like the quiz show scandal. It's like they like mm-hmm. we know something's rotten here. But this is like you remember that documentary about the MPAA, like where it's like why do films get rated R? Yeah. And and yeah, and you this realize it's not yet rated by Kirby Dick. Yeah, and it's like this idea like these people behind. You know, uh, I said solid walls because we don't know what they look like. like. They have all this power. And, you know, very rarely do we get to call out power. And and, and in, in a weird way, what I love, I mean, I know it didn't get nominated for Best Picture or Best Documentary. It did get nominated for Best Editing, which hadn't happened since 1970 for Woodstock. But But the idea that this is a movie about power. On certain level, we're talking about the coach and the kids and taking them out and and abusing power and using people that this movie that it's like comeuppance is almost like giving power back to the documentarians. Like it like it wrestles power away from these powerful people that don't have their the right interests at heart to give it back to the more pure talented people it, it forms a documentary community that, that is voted by documentary filmmakers. It's like this changes the this changes this whole category it absolutely does and by the way if you're like a doc nerd who's wondering what of the uh what of the nominated docs this year to watch i just have to say you have to watch collective collective is unbelievable i'm like very much team collective like in 30 seconds what collective is about is um in romania there was a giant fire at like a goth club and a lot of young people died um And then what happened is they found out that a lot of the young people um, lived in the hospital for a while and then died later because of the medication that they were being given. And so these it's all about these journalists who work for a sports paper. Uh, It's like a sports newspaper gets really engaged in this story and what the thread that they pull on winds up just like revealing so much about the Romanian government that it is amazing. Like this documentary, I'm absolutely ecstatic about it and I hope people watch it. That sounds awesome, and I have not even heard of that. So now that's also on my list. Uh, You're going to love it. You're going to love it. But then also in the grand scheme of history, if you asked anybody like, hey, what do you think won the best documentary Oscar in 1994? They'd be like, Hoop Dreams. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. even think about like a film about Maya Lin, which I hear is great, but they would say Hoop Dreams. So maybe the Oscars... The, Oscars don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. Because look look at that list from 1994. Like... Shawshank Redemption, which we both love, <laughs> uh, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump. Uh, like, if you look at those three films, if I'm looking at those films, I go, Pulp Fiction definitely won that year. Not Forrest Gump, but Forrest Gump, you're right? It's like it's, it's, that's the Forrest Gump year. But but Pulp Fiction is the one that, and I think Shawshank too. I don't want to shit on Shawshank because people love it. But oh, go Pulp ahead. Fiction, but Pulp Fiction redefines cinema to a certain extent. It brings the Quentin Tarantino aesthetic. All these copycats come in. And I, you could say maybe that happened with Reservoir Dogs, but I, I think Pulp Fiction is the mainstream version of this new style of director. And I think that that's Robert Rodriguez. I think that that's, uh, you know, I think that there's that whole crop that kind of comes in, the, you know, uh, in that Miramax, you know, Kevin Smith, that whole that whole era uh, that's really interesting. And 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 fuck it. Like, like, it's an honor to be nominated and there are great movies nominated. And we just talked about the Academy Awards and all that kind of bullshit. But when a film is unassailable, it will be remembered and no one will care about the Academy Awards because it will care about what the thing is. And we, we saw it with Chariots of Fire, which is like, wait, that one? And when you look at the other films that was nominated against, you're like, wait a second, but that doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, maybe they split the vote. So we don't know. Here we do know. But 
I'm surprised there aren't more of these movies about like you know I, I mean you know I think the Thirty for Thirty does a great job of doing I amazing love sports. Oh, if you don't like sports, like by the way, talk about want to talk about a great story, Christian Leitner. The Christian Leitner story in the Thirty for Thirty, amazing, uh, like absolutely amazing, and tells a very uh, not similar story, but you know, again, there's so many of these. Really powerful stories. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the one. So experimental. Like, or so, some I mean, of them yeah. are. Like the one where it's all the day, the day of the OJ Bronco chase. I mean, that's one of the best, yeah. That, was it June 6, yeah. 1994, something like that? It's a date? It's it's basically a pivotal, and by the way, in 1994. But, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. But it was like a day of all of these major things happening in sports. In every like sport, every game, major sport. Jack Nicholas, uh, playoff championships, like um, the World Cup was, was going on. A wild, it's amazing, it, yeah. amazing doc, and it's all just done through like talking heads on the news, like all through archival footage. It's beautiful. I'm also a big fan of the two Pablos. That's the one about oh yeah, um, the, the soccer uh, one. Yeah, yeah, it's all about like the Colombian player who like was raised up making like keeping his team kind of funded in part because Pablo Escobar like helped local soccer teams to burnish his image as like a Robin Hood. Uh, but then also then that this Pablo. Uh, coming to America and winding up scoring an own goal on himself against the United States and going home and getting murdered. It is, so, that's a terrific it, It's amazing. And I know, Amy, you probably love uh, Best of Enemies, right? Which is like oh, the Lakers yeah. and Celtics one. Like, there's so many great ones. And I think that this movie, this, not to say this movie redefined, well, maybe I will. I, I, like, may, I don't know if I have enough, uh, enough knowledge in the field to say it redefined, but I think that this movie influences many people to tell a different type of sports story. Um, and it's, yeah. a, 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 and I think that you can see it in all the sports docs, mainly in 30 for 30, uh, that we can get into some very nitty gritty things and side stories. And it's not just about the big game. It's, it's not about the prep. Um, it's about the emotional heartbeat of these players. And, and, and uh, yeah, it's, it, yeah. I love this movie. We said before we started recording, it's three hours, which I did not realize, and it flew by quicker than most movies we watch on the show. It was like it was, in, and it was so engaging. If this came out today, it would be as popular as The Last Dance, I think, and I think it would have the the conversation around it too that we could maybe even have in a different way. Yeah. Um, no, I think you're right, and to be honest, I think it also did to me shape documentaries. Like, I wonder if we would have as many docs. Like in the key of spellbound or something, you know, about the kids and the spelling bees, which has been, became like a gigantic trend of like documentaries yeah. about competition and excellence. I don't think those would exist without Hoop Dreams. I mean, many of my favorite documentaries predate Hoop Dreams, so I don't want to sit here and be like, no, it of revolutionized. Course. But I think it I think it popularized. And well, that's can really I, important. But I, I think it can say a commercially successful doc. Right. Like and I think that there's something about this doc that threads the needle between what existed before it and what exists after it. And it's kind of this, I'm going to say it and come at me if you disagree, because you probably, you probably are right. Uh, but I think there's something about this moment being a defining moment for the future of documentaries that it's in, some people abuse it, some people don't, but this is an interesting moment. Like to be this high grossing film that's so engaging and, and it works the same way a sports film works. You don't have to know anything about basketball. You don't have to give a shit about basketball. You don't have to care about anyone. Um, and this all was uh, all the much sweeter to me because, as I mentioned, I was watching a game last night as our Clippers came back from an 11-point 
uh, uh, deficit to win. And what do they cut to? You really to? want to I, keep talking about that. I huh? do. And uh, look, you haven't talked about your Lakers, your B squad taking on the Nets and destroying them, which I would, <sighs> I would never stop talking about. But really uh, cool. uh, it was very cool. Uh, I will say this. Watching the end of that game, Isaiah Thomas puts his head in his hands. And I have this image. I put it on my Twitter. It's just like it was just watching Isaiah Thomas talk, talk, talk. And then just watching him just it was just like, I don't know. I I kind of am like, I don't know how I feel about Isaiah Thomas. I kind of think I don't like him. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if the last dance has like soiled me on Isaiah Thomas, but I laughed so hard with like watching this movie. He's so in my head watching him go like Pistons got this Pistons are going to win. And then Clippers win. And he's just like, like just head and hands (laughs) down. Um, But I do like the rivalry between him and, and Michael Jordan and, and there's so much interest. There, he's an interesting player too. I mean, the Pist- uh, the Pistons are interesting. Fat. Yeah, everybody's love interesting. It. I love it all. That's the thing with the world. Everybody's interesting. There's talented kids like this everywhere, and they're all interested. They're all worthy of making a story. And yeah. maybe that has also been one of the great things that documentaries have now like put forward in this. I mean, it, it has been topped at the box office. You know, like Bowling for Columbine, Fahrenheit 9/11 both topped it. Like, there's been tons of big documentaries ever since then. The Winged Migration, which I just rewatched. Um mm. so good. We um ah, my cat passed away and on his last night, like as he was kind of asleep, uh, we put Winged Migration on. We thought like he was kinda dreaming. We'd have some birds uh. in the background and it was such a good movie. It's really, really sweet. But like even even James himself, like I was thinking about, you know, that kind of extra parallel, like he, when this film comes out, like he gets put up all the time, like in first class meetings and hotels to be like, we want you to make fiction films. We like, you are the next hot thing. And he had this realization like of, am I ever going to make anything as good as Hoop Dreams? Like kind of a, will I ever grow to my potential? Um, the way that I feel like this film is like, am I going to be a one hit wonder? Am I going to be like that guy at Sundance on the basketball court being like, I made mm. this film, pay attention. And he did, I think he did push through it. He's made like some great stuff since then. Like he made um, The Interrupters and he made Life Itself, a documentary on Roger Ebert, which is really good. He made um, Abacus, Too Small to Jail, which uh, I think got an Oscar nomination as well. Like it's about a bank that the one bank that took a hit for the financial collapse. Oh, wow. But he pushed through it. But like for a long time, I think he was, he could see himself in this film too. And I think that makes it. I think we all can. I mean, really, that's the universality like, yeah. of it. It's really you know? universal. It's really universal. Um, and so how well, is it amazing that this is so universal and also has those movie moments of like games coming down to free throws that are all on you, stuff that feels scripted. I know. But it's just there and it's real. And uh, and shot better than Hoosiers. Um, Amy, what do you think? Can we send this one up in space? I don't know. Maybe. Nah, maybe not. Interesting. Maybe not. I mean, if we're only picking one from the sports thing, my heart is still with League of Their Own. But this is so great. I feel like this gets a special pass because it's a doc. And I feel I like I want to do so many more docs. Uh, me too. I, I love this one. I, I, I send it to space because I think what we talked about, like regardless of League of Their Own, League of Their Own is a fantastic film. It's a fiction film with amazing actors. This is talking about something so much bigger than sports. It's talking about mm-hmm. America. It's talking about the way that we treat uh, people who are talented versus the way that we p- treat people who we deem not worthy because they're not as talented. Like, there's so much going on here that it's a no-brainer for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and on a list of like the best documentaries, I get. You know, we're also talking about an underrepresented, 
you know, we are trying to make sure that like we are seeing different voices and sides of things. And this is, you know, one thing I can say is about this, the, what we've seen so far in our, in our sports films is like, this is a, this is a story that we didn't come close to in any way. Like you don't see this kind of a grittier story. Yeah. Like you see the, oh, the underdog, but this is like, this is like a level under the underdog. This is like the under underdogs, you know? It's true. And I'm, and to have even Arthur's mom, the way she celebrates his 18th birthday felt, so, so, so topical, you know, her hearing her voice say, I'm just happy he made it to 18. Like that, that makes this film just feel like it was made yesterday. I mean, I want to hear her voice as she says that. He's a great kid. And some kids don't live at this age, you know, that's another thing to be proud about. That, you know, this is 18th birthday. He lived and to get to see 18, that's good. I I don't want us to like end on a on a downer, but I do think it's worth saying that um, uh, Arthur's younger brother doesn't survive. He gets shot that um, that uh, his father also gets shot um, Mm -hmm. and and gets murdered. Um, He talks about that in uh, Hope Reality Uh, that um, Curtis Gates, who I really adore, also gets shot that. A lot of the people you fall in love with in this movie are just here now immortalized in this movie. Like, this is where they are. This is where they exist now because they didn't get to survive in a world of violence. And it is great for William and Arthur that they're still there. And they get to, they, we don't we ever really know that they're friends in the making of this movie, it feels like. Yeah. But they are. They get the hug kind of later on and they are yeah. still friends today. They still seem to have a really good bond. Um, but yeah, I feel like that has to be acknowledged. I know, 100%. Well, Amy, uh, this has been amazing to chat with you yeah. about this movie and what a great way to end this series. I feel like we ended on some uh, two high notes. Uh, and now, yeah, wait, as wait, we've... but you know, you forgot. You never asked me if there is a bad review. Oh my gosh, I did not. Yes. Is there a bad review? No, there isn't. There actually isn't. There actually uh... isn't. So I just thought I would take like a second and read one last thing that Ebert said, because I think it's beautiful and it's about something even bigger than this. Ebert writes... A film like Hoop Dreams is what the movies are for. It takes us, shakes us, and makes us think in new ways about the world around us. It gives us the impression of having touched life itself. That's where the documentary title comes from. Many filmgoers are reluctant to see documentaries for reasons I've never understood. The good ones are frequently more absorbing and entertaining than fiction. Hoop Dreams, however, is not only a documentary. It is also poetry and prose, mudraking and expose, journalism and polemic. It is one of the great movie-going experiences of my lifetime. Wow. I love that. Beautiful. What a better way to snap, snap, what a better snap, way snap, to, snap. So, Amy, this brings us to the end of our uh, sports films based on a real life event uh, miniseries, the Underdogs series, and we are now going into outer space. That's right, we are doing a space miniseries, and we're kicking it off with the very first film, really about. Space. Am I right about that? Am I, am I right saying that? Yeah, um, the very first film to imagine life in space. It is George Melius's 1902 A Trip to the Moon, a movie that I could not be more excited about. It is 13 minutes. It is everywhere, man. It is everywhere. We can't play a clip because it is a silent film, but you can find this uh, for rental, but you can also find it on YouTube. The only thing I'll say is when you're looking for the film, make sure you. Uh, Try to find the best version of it. There's a colorized version of it. And that's not a Ted Turner colorized version. It's actually based on the actual print that they found uh, that was 
colorized back in uh, 1902. So look around, make sure you find uh, the right silent film because these things can really uh, get kind of bastardized a little bit uh, if you don't find the right one. And we're going to do something a little bit different with the show, which is we're not going to tell you all the films that we're going to be doing up top. We're going to have this be a conversation with all of you. So we want you to tell us what movies you would like us to blast off into outer space that are based in space. Right? That's it. Yeah, space they have movies, to be based in space. Yeah, they have to be. So, uh, No Mars part- Attacks, as much as I'd love it. Nope. Uh, would love that. Uh, so yeah, so we want to hear you. So get on social media. Let us know uh, what is what and what you want to see us talk about. And tune in next week for A Trip to the Moon. Mm-hmm.